You may be seated. And children's grades K through 3 are now dismissed to children in worship through that door. Thank you. That's uh, two consecutive weeks of remembering. I don't mean to brag. It's hard not to. And so this morning's text comes to us from Luke chapter 11, and I'm going to start there and invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 11, it's page 845 in your pew Bible, and I will be div- using a different translation than what you have in the pews, don't worry, I'm aware of that, people who run the screens are aware of that, so don't panic when you hear uh, a couple different words, but it is on purpose. So, Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. And he, this is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is shut now, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The end. That's the whole parable. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We ask now that you would give us uh, eyes to see and hearts to hear uh, what it is you are saying to us in this passage and that you would give us the... Uh, Strength and power to apply it to our lives. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So for those of you that have missed, we have been going through the parables for the last three weeks now. And each week we're hitting a parable that covers a different topic. And this one is on prayer, or is it? It is. And um, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about prayer. We're going to start with the context. But first I've got... Uh, some numbers I'd like to run past you. And I did have these numbers memorized earlier in the week. My wife and I were going for a walk, and I recited these numbers. And I said, aren't you impressed that I memorized all those? And she said, oh, I thought you just made them up on the spot. And <laughs> I said, usually, but no. Uh, this time I got the numbers right. I have them written down for the record this morning. And the numbers are these. The Declaration of Independence. Heard of that before? It's uh, 4th of July, and it's the document that severed two nations, created one new nation out of 13 colonies from another nation. Kind of a lot of stuff accomplished there. 1,323 words. So when you get what I consider to be a routine essay assignment in high school or college, it's 1,500 words. It's 1,323 words accomplished all of that. The next document I'd point your attention to is uh, the Gettysburg Address, which is one of the most famous speeches on U.S. soil, 272 words. Most of us have heard four score and seven years ago, and uh, 272 words. So you could add those two together and still would just barely hit the 1,500-word requirement for a high school essay. But it gets even more impressive. The Ten Commandments in the Bible, in Exodus, God's instruction to his people forming a new nation, here's all the moral code I'm going to give you. Ten Commandments, 139 words. Just 139 words. The next, final one, well, the second to last, Lord's Prayer. 
disciples ask Jesus, how do we pray? He says, here's how you pray. 71 words. The U.S. government order setting the price of cabbage. 26,911 words. God can govern a nation with 139 words. He can teach all of his disciples to pray with 71 words. And the U.S. government requires 26,911 words to set the price of cabbage. Now, the Madisons were here at first service, and I asked them. They run a produce store, and I said, can you guys set the price of cabbage in under 26,911 words? And they said yes, which is uh, a strong endorsement for shopping at Madison's. But the point here is that sometimes, not always, but sometimes less is more. And that's what we're going to get at in this chapter. And the reason I want you, if you don't already have your Bibles open, we're going to refer to it a couple more times. It's page 845. And I want you to see what I'm talking about here. Because we're going to learn uh, a couple helpful Bible study tips along the way. And so the first thing we've been doing every week is we look at the context of each parable. Say, what does the surrounding text tell us about the text that we're reading today? And then we look at the context of the first century, uh, you know, Palestine, Israel, and learn a little bit there. And so the first thing here is the immediate context. Now, this is the first parable we've read from Luke's gospel. It's not the last, but it's the first for this series. And Luke is a very clever writer. He will almost always tell you what to look for when you're reading his text. For example, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is depicted on that window over there. When he sets up that parable, he says, now Jesus was talking to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then he tells a story about a Pharisee who trusted in himself that he was righteous. And if you had to say, what's the point of that parable, you would say, it's about people who trust in themselves that they're righteous instead of trusting in God. And so Luke sometimes lays it out very easily for us. In fact, here, he has this as a continuation of thought. And so the whole chapter is answering uh, one question, which begins in verses 1 and 2. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us to pray as John's disciples taught, uh, as John taught his disciples. And so that's the request. Teach us to pray. So everything that follows after will have something to do with Jesus fulfilling that request. And he says, uh, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, it's even shorter than the Lord's Prayer most of us are used to. That's only 36 words. Uh, the one we frequently recite in church is from Matthew's Gospel in 71 words, like I referenced earlier. But they ask how to pray, and Jesus says, here, this is how you do it. And then, notice the next sentence starts with and, which is our parable. And then he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? And we have our parable and then immediately following this, starting in verse 9, he says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, 
If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so that's our passage on prayer. Now, it might be hard to draw a conclusion. In fact, I'll submit to you that as we go on, it's even harder sometimes by what our English translation of the Bible has uh, done to it. Um, but first, let's talk about what's going on here, what's going on in the parable. It's important for us to realize uh, if there's something going on that culturally would have been a red flag to someone or would have made sense to the first century audience that wouldn't necessarily make sense to us, we want to be draw attention to that. And so here's the first thing that we see in the parable. First of all, by the way, the parable is... Almost the entire parable is one rhetorical question. It's Jesus saying, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight? And that's the setting for the parable. And then just one verse at the end saying, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because uh, he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him what he needs. That's the parable. And so the first thing we see is uh, friends traveling, arriving at night and landing at your house. Who thinks that's? Is that an unusual story? Is that normal? I know it happens now. First century, anything weird happening there? No. In fact, it was very wise to travel at night. If you look at their part of the world, it's a lot cooler to travel at night. So this was actually quite common. Friend arrives at midnight. And then the next thing we see is, I need three loaves of bread. I need to feed him. He just walked all this way. He's hungry. He's tired. He just got in. And I don't have any food, so what do I do? I go wake the neighbor, of course. Anything unusual here? And the answer, once again, is no. And there's some context here that helps, and it's important for us to remember that the first century world, in fact, many parts of our modern world, live in what's described as a shame and honor-based culture. Your whole sense of identity, your whole sense of meaning, comes from shame or honor. And there are actions that you can do that are shameful, which you want to avoid, and actions you can do that are honorable, which bring honor to your name, to your family, to your household, and those are ones you want to do. And so providing food for someone conveys honor, which is why in the Bible it's a big deal when someone goes into someone's house and they sit with them and they have a meal together. And so the host would be ashamed if he was not able to be a good host for his friend. If he doesn't have food for his friend... That would be bring shame on him. So he goes to his next door neighbor, which, by the way, this is um, a very relatable parable, right? If you're the guy in bed and your friend comes over and you're like, come on, man, I just, just got the kids down. The door is closed. Um, surely some parents in the room understand. Uh, in fact, we have new parents over there. Do we have a first ever attendance from Milo? We do. Baby Bataclet is over there. Nine days old. And so imagine if your neighbor, after you just got him to bed, your neighbor, which, by the way, is Pastor Drew, came over and asked for three loaves of bread. (laughs) He's not on your friend list anymore, right? You just got everything settled down. And and so you say, just, you know, just come back in the morning. Don't don't make me get up right now. But it says eventually his friend decides that he would get up. Now, why did the friend decide that he'd get up? Now, most of your Bibles will tell you that the word is persistence in verse 8. In fact, uh, the Bible that you're holding from the pew has a caption 
that says it's a, the whole section is about persistence. And that's not true. Because, uh, first of all, the shame-honor culture is in play here again. It says uh, it's shameful for you to deny a request to a neighbor who has a need. So it's like, I don't really want to get up, but it would bring shame on my house to not get up and give you bread. And so for the sake of shame, I'll get up and give you bread. And you may be wondering, what's going on here? Why is this a parable? Uh, and what uh, are we doing preaching on it this morning? Well, we want to talk about what this parable means. And the first thing I want to point out to you is that, and this happens from time to time, uh, there's not my favorite translation happening here from Greek to English. And if you read a couple different English Bibles, you'll see it translated a few different ways. But that word, persistence, in almost every English translation, whether it's the NRSV, which you're holding, the HCSB, the NASB, translate that as persistence. Now, the English Standard Version, the King James Version, translated as impudence, which is uh, a much better word, but how many of you use the word impudence on a daily basis? It's kind of fallen out of style. In fact, you can like Google a word and see how much it's used in writing per year, and you can see that that peaked out a couple centuries ago. Uh, so, it's an accurate word, but it's maybe not the most helpful word. And the more helpful word, which by the way, the NLT, the New Living Translation, almost gets... Uh, shamelessness is how that word is actually translated in other uh, ancient documents. So if you look at uh, all of the, you know, the scholars, which I did not look at all of these documents this week, just to let you know. I trust a commentator who did. But there are 512 occurrences of this Greek word in ancient texts from the first and second century, which is people writing in the same time period, using it in the same way. And it is never in any other circumstance translated as persistence. It's translated as shamelessness. Uh, so the NLT says uh, because of his shameless persistence. And um, so they got the word shameless, but they still are kind of hung up on persistence. But here's the thing. If you took out the word persistence, which I would argue that it's not there anyway, but if you remove that from your English translation, you would not pick up the connotation of persistence in any other way. There's no repeated knocking. There's no repeated request. He doesn't ask for loaves multiple times. He's not being persistent. This is playing on a shame and honor culture. And so it's saying because of his shamelessness, he will get up and grant your request. And so, which still leaves us with what is going on here, right? It only moves us an inch closer. Uh, so once you take this away, you know, you see that persistence is not the theme. And in fact, the I think somehow... Sometimes we get the wires crossed because the theme of persistence does show up in a very similar parable in Luke 18, which is the parable of the unjust judge, which says, uh, you know, this woman, she has to badger this unjust judge to get him to bring about justice and change his mind. But even there, uh, persistence is not the theme of that parable because it's implying the same thing here. In fact, the only time we hear Jesus talk about repetition and persistence in prayer he is admonishing against it. In Matthew 6, 7, he says, don't be like those people who just heap up empty phrases. You know, just keep going on and on and come up with all of these phrases and go on and on, thinking that they will be heard for their many words. That's Matthew 6, 7. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, if persistence is not what's being prescribed here, it's not what's being described here, what are we talking about? And so 
here, this is important because I tried to tell you that each time we study a parable, we're going to learn something that teaches us how to read other parables. And so this is a teaching that was very, a tactic that was very common in Jewish teaching. And it's, uh, it's called, for lack of a better term, the how much more argument. How much more. So it moves from weaker to stronger. And it moves from lesser to greater. And so sometimes it spells out all the details, but sometimes it puts it on the listener to come to the conclusion, which this one does. And the way that we can see this one, so this one, in, a, in effect, the parable is saying, if a human, obviously, will get up in the middle of the night to grant the request of you, a rude friend, will not God, uh, or how much more will God get up to grant your request who isn't sleeping and is not motivated by shame? Uh, you don't have to use those things with him because he is better than your human friend who's sleeping. And so if a human's willing to get up and answer their annoying request because their shame is on the line, how much more will God be willing to do this? And if you don't believe me that this is what's happening here, keep reading in the same paragraph, and he uses the logic again. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so, it's not saying that through persistence you magically unlock, you know, your prayer request. It's saying, if your friends who you like and your fathers who are generally know how to give you a good gift wouldn't give you a serpent instead of an egg, um, if they know how to give good gifts, how much more does God and how much more willing will God be willing to grant that request? And so the parable affirms the importance of prayer and it is an invitation to pray. And the question is, should, you know, should a person, uh, of faith pray faithfully as part of a continual walk? Of course they should. Surely, if you would ask for help and expect help from a neighbor, then how much more should you ask help and expect help from God? And so as I was thinking about this parable this week and how to apply this parable, I like to, I'm kind of in a rhythm now of I work on the sermon on Monday, try to get the point down, and then I talk to people about it throughout the week. And I don't know if you knew this, but people have thoughts on prayer, a lot of them. And uh, sometimes they're uh, coming from it from very different directions. And so I've... Three things that I think we can safely extract from this parable, especially when we understand it in context of Jesus' teaching. And the first is this. God does not require repetition or persistence because he knows our needs before we come to him, which is from Matthew 6, 8. In Matthew 6, 7, he says, you know, don't heap up empty phrases thinking you'll be heard for your many words because, verse 8, he knows our requests before we come to him. So, First thing, God does not require repetition or persistence. Now, that's not a prohibition against repetition or persistence. You're free to be, to repeat yourself or to, uh, you know, bring prayers before God again and again and again. But what he's saying is that doesn't necessarily make it more effective. And so secondly, we can learn that our prayers are not a performance before God or other people. So when we pray, we're praying to God, and we do not need to impress him uh, with our performance in terms of, uh, you know, how long we pray or uh, 
the third thing here, our prayers do not need to be long or extravagant. And so I was talking to people about this. Now, once again, there's nothing wrong with a prayer being long. In fact, you should spend serious time in prayer. And that's not what this parable is warning against or teaching against. But it's uh, saying to us that our prayers do not need to be long or extravagant. In fact, they say, how do we pray? And he says, here's how you pray. And it's just two verses. And so I was thinking about, you know, how this will connect with people and how it connects with me. And I don't know if anyone here has ever experienced this, but I was talking to a few people and they were like, you know, that that could be a really good news for me because some people don't like praying in a group because I don't know if this has ever happened to anyone here. There's one person in the group who is just so good at crafting their sentences and they can weave all of these great you know, theology and rhythm and cadence and they're just so eloquent in the way that they speak and that's a beautiful thing, that's a good thing but sometimes people sitting on the sidelines hear that and think, well, I can't pray like that therefore I can't pray. And this passage is saying, no, you can pray. All it requires is an honest conversation with God. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be impressive. You don't have to be eloquent in your speech or extravagant in your request. You simply have to come to God because the effectiveness of prayer does not depend on the prayer, but on the one to whom is we're praying. I'll say that again. See, I'm not, not against repetition. The effectiveness of prayer does not rest on the prayer, but on the one to whom you're praying. Which means we don't have to impress God with fancy speech or uh, anything else that we might conjure up uh, in our you know, prayer meetings, prayer circles, or even in your personal prayer time. Now, there's nothing wrong you know, with expressing yourself. You see beautiful expressions of poetic thought and prayer all throughout Scripture. That's definitely still okay, but it's not required. And if you're intimidated by prayer, by the practice of prayer, and it keeps you from having a prayer life, just know that, first of all, if you are asking, just like the disciples, Lord, teach us how to pray, the first thing he'll tell you is, here, I gave you a prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. Start with that. If nothing else, you have the Lord's Prayer. He teaches you how to pray. And then secondly, he says, you know, this this is what happens when you pray. We're learning something about who God is. So the parable is teaching about prayer, but more importantly, it's teaching us about God. And it's saying God is not someone, he's not your sleeping neighbor. You don't have to, you know, he hasn't tucked the kids in and gone to bed for the night and he's not going to be annoyed by your request. Just go to him at any hour. It's not a problem. And he is not like a father who gives, uh, who gives bad gifts. In fact, your father knows how to give you good gifts and how much more does God know how to give gifts than that. And if you look at Luke 18, the parable of the unjust judge, it says, you know, if this woman can get what she wants from an unjust judge by being persistent and bothering him, how much more will God grant justice because he is not an unjust judge? And those are the parables on prayer. Now, I've weaved a few things together here. So those are your homework assignments for the week. Luke 8, I believe it's Luke 18 with the unjust judge. And so when we pray, we communicate our beliefs about God, both in what we say and in how we say it. You say a lot about what you believe about who God is by the way that you pray. And so Jesus is teaching us how to pray 
And, and problems have arisen with this parable and others like it because people want sometimes a more direct application to create a whole theology of prayer. But remember, that's usually not what a parable is doing. It's not saying everything the Bible has to say about prayer is summed up in this parable. What it's trying to do is just capture one aspect of it, just one thought, and teach it to us in a way that we can understand, and that's what's happening here. And so, is it wrong, I hope you've heard me say this, is it wrong for Christians to continually pray the same request repeatedly? Absolutely not. In fact, if a matter is uh, of concern continues, of course we should keep praying. But, and here's the snag, discussions of persistence usually carry the implication that if we speak long enough or passionately enough, God will change his mind. And that's what this parable is saying, is saying, you don't need to persuade God to do the right thing, to do good things. That's who he is. That's what he does. He does not need to be uh, coerced into that like a sleeping friend or an unjust judge. And so the whole point of this parable, a lot of times we look at parables and we try to say, well, which is the character that represents God? And in this case, God is not represented in this character, in this parable. In fact, he's contrasted with the character in this parable. It's saying God is not like the sleeper. Uh, and so therefore, because God is not like our sleeping friend who, for the sake of his own shame, can be coerced into getting up, we can go freely before God who knows how to give good gifts to his children because he is not like the sleeper, nor is he like an unjust judge, nor is he even like our earthly fathers. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray that you would continue to teach us uh, through your parables. Uh, we pray that we would uh, grow as you speak uh, through your word, and we pray uh, that you would strengthen each and every one of our prayer lives with the confidence in who you are and who have you revealed who you have revealed yourself to be